my team expects me to have a dissenting opinion because that's the bedrock of innovation and creativity. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm J.R. Flatter, and I'm the host of Building a Coaching Culture. As always, I'm joined here by Lucas. Hello. I'm the millennial voice, or he's the millennial voice. I'm the (laughs) boomer voice. We have the pleasure of having Saul Gomez here today. He is our distinguished guest. Just to remind everybody, to include our listeners, who our audience is, it's any leader of a complex organization that's creating a coaching culture to succeed in the 21st century labor market, which we all know is hyper-competitive. People's expectations of their organizations are changing. The freelance gig economy is here to stay. So that's what we're here all about. So Saul, I'll pass it over to you. Take some time, brag about yourself a little bit. Tell us what you've been up to. Tell us what you're doing. Thanks. And so, it, you know, it's interesting you talk about the landscape of our work environment right now. And so I'll start off by saying I'm a zennial, not a millennial, not a boomer, not necessarily a Gen Xer. There's like this, this micro generation <laughs> called zennials, right? I think it's like 77 through 85. And so we're mm. kind of unique, er, <laughs> more so than Gen Xers. And, and I use the term colloquially just because I think everybody brings their own set of diversity. But I'm a self-proclaimed Zinio. I'm also a 24-year Navy combat veteran. I served 24 years. The latter part of my career, I was the chief diversity officer for major staff command and the leading chief of strategic innovation, where one of the things that I was challenged with is, is operationalizing diversity, equity, and inclusion at scale, right? And from a leadership standpoint. And, and now back up a little bit further, I originally from Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles, and I joined the mm-hmm. Navy to box. Made the Navy boxing team, but the Navy had other plans for me. And after four years, I was going to get out. And then 9-11 happened, and I was mm-hmm. given a lot of training, cruiser weapons, and put on a small boat and said, go do great things and keep 9-11 from ever happening again. And so started my career in what the Navy calls the expeditionary community, where you work with explosive ordnance disposal units, uh, Army, a bunch of different things to encounter drug operations and counterterrorism type of work, both waterborne and, and boots on ground. I've served 13 deployments in South America mm-hmm. and the Middle East. And so I say all that to say that had it not been for my operational experiences, I wouldn't have gotten the context of how leadership shows up, how in this context, right, a, a culture of coaching shows up in the world, in our organizations, and how do we take theory, contextualize it, and apply it practically, right, and bring that collegiality that small units really benefit from in the special operations forces. So I'm also a certified project director and an agile HR professional, and I'm also mm-hmm. a director of culture assessments for TIBC. What do I do? I I assess culture, right? We come in and we assess an organization. We take a very uh, methodical approach. We do surveys, focus groups, interviews, review policies and procedures, and conduct observations, right? What's a day in the life of an employee? Other fragments of what I do is, is also training and development. We do facilitation, having guided discussions on psychological safety. What does it look like? What does it sound like, right? It's not just delivering training, but what does it look like and sound like? And so I'm really fortunate to work with the team that I do. We're very innovative. We're very creative. We love challenges. We love to pivot. And 
I think it's at the spirit of, of where we're at in the current environment, right? Where, where we're currently adapting and constantly evolving. And I think that that is a necessity right now, especially at the leadership level in terms of how, how and what we define as what a good leader is. So just pleasure to be here. Very fortunate and happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No, there's a lot there. You've had a pretty impressive career. So, uh, what do you call the stage in your life? You've, uh, I tell people I've unsuccessfully retired twice, but. Uh. <laughs> so uh, my good friend, a really close friend of mine, he says, uh, you know, the, the military side of your life was Saul 1.0 and now I'm in Saul 2.0 and I'm working on Saul 3.0. And so that's kind of how I gauge it right now. I'm, I'm in a season of post-military life. This is my first adult job that's not military. And, mm-hmm. you know, a year after I retired, I retired August of 2020, I, I gave myself a year to transition so to speak. And going on two years, I realized that the transition is a constant, never-ending, you know, evolution of involvement, uh, evolvement uh, rather, and both professionally and personally, right? How do I show up, you know, with my family now that I'm retired, now that I don't have all these operational commitments, you know, what do I like, what I don't like now that I have more flexibility, what do I do with it? What do I wear? <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I've had to kind of figure out how to dress myself. And, and so that's been a change. That's been a transition, something I've had to adapt to and, and show myself a little bit of grace. I think a lot of times we're, we're our own worst critics. And if we don't have the ability to show ourselves grace, then how can we show that to others? How can we give something that we don't necessarily have ourselves? So part of our focus is on transitioning leaders. And you're, you've transitioned much more recently than I have. If you could go back five years and look at that what might you change about your transition? I think I would have been a little bit more selfish. I would have been a little bit more selfish with my time, taking more of an introspective look within myself and really dig into where do I need to improve? How do I set myself up for success? Not just operationally, right? Because in the military, it's as long as you're operational, right? You're either an operator or you're not. And so how do I show up to my family? How do I show up to my peers when we're not deployed, when we're not operational, right? How do I build a collegiality that, that I benefited from in the field in a more sterile setting, in an office setting? That in itself was a huge challenge for me when I stopped being so operational and focused more on major staff, strategic, that type of environment. It was very different um, and culture shock. So I would have taken more of an introspective look within myself and, and shown myself some grace and be a little selfish with my own personal development. Something that really jumped out from when you were given your story at the beginning was how you were like training as a boxer and everything. Did that transition, was that challenging for you at the time? And what did you take away from, you know, going from training at that professional level to kind of. So I, I, I boxed, right. That was my sport. I, I did a lot of boxing and I jumped from foster home to foster homes and boxing became my passion, became my home, became my, you know, my heart. And short of moving to Mexico and, and, living out of a gym to like got a couple of fights and then come back to the U.S. and try to launch a pro career. Navy recruiter said, hey, Navy has a boxing team. Why don't you join the Navy boxing team and box for the Navy? They'll pay you. You get benefits. They'll give you places to sleep, food to eat. And I was like, no brainer. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> and um, when I tried out for the Navy boxing team and I made the Navy boxing team, I realized that it was kind of a collateral additional kind of a extracurricular activity, if you will. Whereas my primary duty was what the Navy trained me for. And at the time it was a mechanical engineering on, on small ships. And, um, it was really deflating. I was really upset. I felt like I was kind of bait and switched and, Mm -hmm. um, just had a hard time dealing with that. And I had 
every intention of getting out and just being done with the military and uh, 9-11 happened and my perspective changed. I finally kind of have this sense of ownership. Like I have, I have a dog in this fight, right? I was married at the time. I had a child on the way and I'm like, oh my God, this hit home, right? And so I felt a sense of a calling, like what else can I do beyond fighting, beyond boxing? How do I take what I know and take that fight and transform it into something productive? And so the, the military afforded me the opportunity and my career took off. I had no intentions of staying 24 years, but 24 years went by in the blink of an eye. And so I, I think I, throughout that, through that challenge and that struggle and that frustration and that anger, I found a sense of purpose. And so I, I've learned to welcome challenges and pitfalls as opportunities for how is this going to make me better? You know, I'm not going to dwell on the fact that this sucks right now because it sucks. How am I going to get past it? Right. What mm -hmm. are the next steps? You know, and sometimes it's just as literal as it sounds is left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. <laughs> and before you know it, you start walking briskly and then you jog and then, you know, you end up at a dead sprint to the next milestone. And I think in all that, I indirectly learned how to suck at things. Mm -hmm. I was never the guy that was sustained superior performance. A lot of times, you know, my lack of maturity or just my stubbornness kind of, I had ups and downs, but in that I found that if I allow myself to suck at something, I learn and then I get better at it. And then I kind of, <laughs> I don't know, it almost became, uh, my MO, right? Like, okay, great. I got, I, I'm good at this now. What, what else can I suck at? And it, it kind mm -hmm. of became my thing. Like, what else can I learn? And I had this appetite for learning. And I, I guess that became my fear. I, I don't fear heights. I don't fear snakes. I don't feel the fear of the dark. I, I fear ignorance. I, I feel mm. very uncomfortable when I'm in a conversation <laughs> and I have no idea what people are talking about. I'll stay up all night and Google it and find out and, and then question myself. Why don't I know this? Why didn't I know this? But I think that comes from that, uh, wanting to suck at something, right? Wanting to challenge myself and learn something new. And I try to do that, just show myself a little bit of grace, right? Because we're imperfect humans and we can only strive to become better than what we were. Yeah, that's a, that's a superpower is jumping into activities that you're not good at and learning. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's one of my favorite memes. It's uh, You see it in various forms, but it says something to the effect of be courageous enough to suck at something new. Yeah, and exactly. I, I love that. I love that mentality. And if you are a lifelong learner, which we strongly recommend people be, you're going to be a novice for your whole life. Yeah. What it builds resiliency, right? And I think yeah. I, I hear I, more so. I've been hearing the you know the the theme. I, I've been frequenting TikTok a lot more, and there's actually some pretty good stuff in there about the saying of jack of all trades and a master of none. But I think the saying goes on a little bit further, saying that yes, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but still better than the master of one, right? Mm -hmm. Because the jack of all trades has such a well-rounded perspective on things. And I think there are there is capacity and time and place for those specialists that are good at that one thing. But I think as a leader, it's, it's incredibly important to be receptive to new things and be well-rounded, right? Not just being this, this uh, one-trick pony that this is how I lead and this is it. And, and because I think the diversity of our society requires that of leaders to be adaptive, to be innovative, to be uh, omnidirectional, right? Have a, a nominee presence of being able to do many things and, and, and really at the core of it, the humanity of it empathize. And I think that mm -hmm. is so, so crucial that leaders have that ability to, and, and that's not to say sympathize. A lot of times the term mm -hmm. empathy and sympathy are used interchangeably, but empathy, meeting people where they're at and at least being there with them, right? Sometimes that's all people need and it makes a world of a difference, especially when you're being genuine, because people know when you're being genuine, 
and when you're not, right? It's kind of the same thing when you're crossing people. You're like, hey, how you doing, Gregory? How you doing? Great. That's awesome. Great. And you keep going. And I've experimented with that. And I've told people I'm not doing so good. And what's the response? Awesome. Great. I'm doing great. Thanks. <laughs> wow. What if I really was mm-hmm. having a bad day? You just, mm-hmm. you, you know, how <laughs> inauthentic is that? So I think it's important to take those moments, right? And be really intentional and present for leaders. Yeah. What you're describing is a coaching culture, empathy, growth of the leader that you're working with, and many other things. So we're fascinated with culture. It's part of our mission here. And you measure cultures. How do you do that? I know you, you, you give us a wave top look, but if I'm a leader and I know my culture is either my success or failure going forward, how do I know it's broken or how do I know it's working well? Well, one of the things that, that I would say is using a litmus test, right? And what does that look like? Sometimes I could be managing by walking around, right? Meeting people where they're at. Hey, what's going on? What's, what's really great this week? What's really not great? Really capitalizing on inclusivity and not vetted inclusivity, right? There's, there's one thing of being able to connect with people and another thing where somebody at two levels down says something and by the time it gets to the leader, it's completely changed, right? Like the game telephone, the message changes. So I think being able to measure that, uh, th- there's so many different ways, right? One is management by walking around, bringing different types of people to the table. Obviously time and place for everything, but you know, sometimes the macro level decisions need that micro level influence and, and, and input. Quick story, uh, we, in the military, one of the ways that we operationalized diversity, equity, and inclusion was to start the scene called the Centers for Adaptive Warfighting. And so what was happening is as tanks were being built, the engineers were like, oh man, this might be really ergonomically nice for Marines to have. And, you know, when they brought the Marines in, they're like the very junior front Marines rougher on their edges are like, that's dumb. I don't need extra padding. Remove the five inches of padding and give me an extra shell. I want more bullets, right? Like, mm. why are you spending all this money on extra cushioning when I really want bullets? Well, that's great mm. to know ahead of time. Instead of when it's, the tank is built, they're they're gutting it of all the different creature comforts that they really don't want because they're not in that tank for comfort. They're there to go do a job. And so how to measure culture, I think it's being more inclusive of people. Surveys certainly help. But, but even then, I think a lot of times when we look at metrics, we look at those and focus on who's saying it versus what's saying. And one of the approaches that we emphasize with clients is, when we do surveys, when we do focus groups and interviews and observations, a lot of the questions are like, well, who said it? Or that sounds like this person said it. Mm. Well, that's, that's mm. the wrong lens to see it with. And, and I don't like making absolute terms, but that is absolutely the wrong lens to see it with. Focus on what's being said, right? And then contextualize it. Are more people saying it? And, and if they're not, if, you're, if this is the first time you're hearing it, that might be an indicator of, of a more deeper seated issue. Why are people not bringing it up? within the organization, why is it taking an external organization coming in for them to express themselves? And a lot of times, psychological safety isn't rooted in that. There isn't the psychological safety for people to have dissenting opinions. And there is such a thing as dissenting opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's having not having to have the courage to, to speak up or have a dissenting view, is, is having the sense of, hey, my team expects me to have a dissenting opinion. Because that's the bedrock of innovation and creativity. When you have those sparks, when you have those disruptions, right? And it might be a crazy idea, but then somebody comes by and says, hey, you know what? That's crazy enough where it might work. I have this resource and that resource. And then somebody else comes by and tweaks it. And before you know it, you have a brilliant idea. But it wouldn't have been a brilliant idea without the dissenting and sparking and disruption that caused it to begin with. So that got me thinking, um, you know, we talk about having people from 
lower in an organization, talking to leadership and kind of flattening the hierarchy to have those conversations. But do do you encourage like deliberate cross-discipline, like programmers talking to writers and, you know, that kind of a thing? Absolutely. One modality to do that is, is design thinking, right? Where we bring a, a very cross-functional approach to things where we want to bring different people, the the IT people speaking with the admin people, right? And and, and finding some level of, of translation. And I think that the human-centered design process, design thinking process, is a really great uh, modality that is very inclusive, very innovative, and it brings everybody's ideas to bear from a very divergent process initially, right? It's throw it all against the wall and see what sticks and then get really convergent, right? Let's start narrowing down. Let's start building affinity groups because then everybody has a buy-in, right? Everybody gets to throw things up against the wall, and then you start converging on some of those ideas, regardless of who brought it up. And then what we find is that it's less important who said it or whose idea was it, and more so about how can this idea and this other idea converge? How can your 80% help my 20% so that we can both get to 100%? And that, I think, is the essence of cross-functional teaming. And, and really just having, one, the psychological safety and the ability to empathize with one another knowing that there might be a barrier or a challenge because you speak IT and I speak HR, right? So we need somebody to come in and help translate that. And, and so human-centered design is a great modality that's, that's very inclusive where everybody has a voice. And that served really well in the military because one of those concepts of those workshops is no, no uniforms and everybody's on a first-name basis, right? And, and we all have an equitable share. We all have a voice. I've heard you mention psychological safety several times. For a layman like like Lucas and I, what what does that mean to you and what should it mean to us as leaders? So psychological safety is the ability to speak your mind and express yourself without the worry of having any repercussion or being shamed or shunned or blackballed or just, hey, you're not like one of us, right? It's 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 knowing that the team expects people to have very different ideas and very different perspectives and that that's welcome. That's psychological safety. And one would argue that, well, that's trust, right? Well, trust is, you know, me trusting JR, me trusting Lucas, but can I trust Lucas and JR to not judge me because of my dissenting opinions, right? Can Lucas and JR trust me and the team to have these explosive conversations and then still grab a drink afterwards, right? And doing Mm -hmm. it professionally, right? It's not only just the concept, but what does that sound like? What does that look like? And a lot of times it's very simplistic. And, and Veronica, my colleague, is, is you know ingenious about this. And, and from a psychological standpoint, of how do I approach a conversation that I might not agree with? And we go back and forth without even thinking about it. Right? I don't approach situations with questioning people because that's not. It creates a defensive response, right? So rather than to say, "Hey, Jr., why did you do this?" and "This is crazy," and "This is not you know very very aesthetically pleasing," or whatever the case may be, I might approach it differently and say, "Hey, Jr." Really curious as to how you came about to this decision. Can you walk me through your thought process? I want to better understand this. It's less defensive and it's more, yeah, yeah, let me talk to you through it. Great. That's awesome. Have you considered this as an alternative? In the future, if you try this, you might yield better success or a more efficient way of getting to the same result. And then it's less confrontational where you feel like you have to defend yourself and more about having a shared experience and a perspective that you might not have had before. Because I might have a different insight, a different perspective, or a different resource that you might say, hey, Saul, well, I don't have that resource. Can, can you help me on it? Absolutely. Call Jim, call Bob, call Sally, and they'll help you out. Right? But we won't know that until we have that conversation. 
And so psychological safety, that's what it sounds like. That's what it looks like. It's being able to have different perspectives, different ideas, dissenting opinions, and still be able to be functional and not be at each other's throats. Because I think a lot of times language is important in, in how we come across at thick skin. So you can come and tell me, hey, Saul, this is stupid. You shouldn't have done that. You're probably right. Help me understand why it's stupid, right? Not everybody's like that. And somebody might not respond well to that. Oh, no, I'm not stupid. You're stupid. And so <laughs> now we've lost sight of what the premise of the conversation was about. So I think the approach is very important in terms of when we talk about psychological safety, not only just understanding what it is, but what does it sound like? What does it look like in the workplace? So with the assessment, like a culture assessment, you're doing interviews and you know collecting data and everything. Do those like qualitative sources ever have like, you know, contradictions with, oh, maybe the culture looks really great on paper, but people are saying, oh, I don't like this and this or vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. And which is why we take a, a triangulation approach. We, we take quantitative and qualitative and we do the coding, right? We, we look at that. Then we look at the processes, policies and procedures and see where the alignment is and where there's misalignment. And then try to identify why there's misalignment. Why are we saying one thing, but the policy says something else, right? And sometimes it's because that's what you've always done it, or the policy is stupid, so we do this. Well, how many people know about that? Well, I know about it. And then it becomes a, there's the in-group and out-group, right? And the out-group tends to be more in the dark. And so they have a different sentiment of the in-group, which, yeah, everything's great. But then you might have a fragment of, well, it's not so great. And the overarching sentiment might be, well, it's just a few of them. Well, if even if you're just one, why does that one person feel excluded? Like it could be an LMS issue. It could be uh, uh, the way that we disseminate information, right? Especially in the Navy, it was, you know, when we went into this technology, right? When we went to having computers, well, not everybody on a ship gets to have a computer. So when, for example, when I came in the Navy, we all used to gather around and have roll call and your leader would literally have the plan of the day, right? that he or she scribbled on a piece of paper from the main plan of the day and they would read off at eight o'clock we're doing this at nine o'clock we're doing this at 10 o'clock we're doing this and so forth and so forth. Well, when we went to a digital platform, right? Where everything was like computers, well, it's like, but did you not read the POD? The plan of the day? Well, no, no, I, I don't have a computer. We should know this. <laughs> I don't have a computer. Like I go and turn wrenches all day or I go and dig holes and fill them in every day. I wouldn't have access to a computer. We don't do that at roll call anymore. Oh, that's right. Not everybody. Asked. So there was that, you know, people weren't getting the information disseminated. So some people would, some people wouldn't. And, but we had to adapt to that and understand that not everybody's going to get the information the same way. And so it's about communicating and how we communicate and the approach that we take to communication that, that becomes important. And a lot of times when that doesn't happen, it creates other issues that exacerbate other issues. And pretty soon we're, we're having arguments and dissent over, I don't know, the color of the you know, sheets of paper when it's really a ink issue, you know, if that makes sense. So I think it's, it's important to, to understand that. And, and when we're looking at culture assessments and looking at our qualitative and quantitative survey, we really take a, a really proactive and methodical approach to really dissecting where are these misalignments at and what might be causing them. Um, and again, we focus on what's being said, not who said it, because then, you know, biases tend to show up when, oh yeah, this person said it and they're a bad person because X, Y, and Z, and they're always late. So you, you can discount what they said. Well, why are they late? You know, do, well, I don't know. They're just late. Are they homeless? <laughs> do they not have transportation? You know, there's so many different variables that if we're not thought leaders, if we're not being empathizing, if we're not trying to meet people where they're at, right? If we're not trying to build collegiality and connectedness, we're never going to know that. And we're always going to have a skewed view of what's showing up, not really knowing what the root cause is. 
And it's the same thing for organizational culture. Talk to me a little bit more about operationalizing DEI. I love those two terms together. That's that's pretty cool. So when I became the chief diversity officer for the Navy Reserve headquarters, we were doing observations, right? African-American History Month, Hispanic History Month, Women's History Month, Pride Month. I know that was great, right? The, it was all culminated with this big food festival for the week. And every day of the week, it was a different food from different country. And it was awesome. And I always challenged the CDET team, the, the command diversity education team. Okay, great. So what? Tied to the mission. How do we tie this to the mission? That was a challenge. That's great that we're doing these observances. And the regulation says we need to do these because minorities, you know, in underrepresented groups, demographics need to have representation. Great. How are we tying it to the mission? Right. And so I had to find really innovative ways of doing that. How do we leverage our talent pool? How do we see beyond the person and really hone in on what they bring to the table? For example, very junior enlisted person Gomez in South America was a huge asset when they found out that, oh, you speak native Spanish, right? Mm. It's not translator Spanish that speaks a very robotic Spanish and I'm a native speaker. So I had better luck and better outcomes with the Colombia Special Forces because I got more insight because I was able to relate with them a little bit more because I spoke native Spanish. And so that's a way to operationalize a diversity, right? They leveraged the heck out of me and I was okay with it. It was pretty cool. I got to work with them and we did a lot of great things. And and it's not just a race and gender thing. It's it's the IT people, it's the the HR people, mm-hmm. it's it's the logistics people, right? It's really looking beyond race and gender, although it's very important because when we talk about underrepresented groups, but I think each organization, like for example, the special operations community, a lot of them focus on their special operators, right? The SEALs. But what about their support teams? What about their logistics teams? What about all the people behind the scenes that make it work? They're also important. So how do you leverage that talent pool? And they're really great about that, right? Because they really leverage each other and, and they really operationalize the diversity that they have by being inclusive, by saying, hey, what do you think? Just because I'm a Navy SEAL doesn't mean I know it all because I'm a Navy SEAL, I'm not a logistician. I'm a Navy SEAL, I'm not an administrative person. And so it's really finding that value in what people bring and then leveraging the heck out of it. So what do you think it takes to kind of encourage that behavior of like, I've read about Navy SEALs, I'm not, not a lot of firsthand experience, but they're always portrayed as really humble, like, oh, I know I don't have this capability, I need to go get help with it. So how do you kind of build that mentality in a culture? Of being able to reach out or being receptive? Yeah, like that humble kind of, you know, yeah, I don't know this, and I need, you know, support from another person. You know, again, I'll go back to what I said a, a, a few moments back that it's hard to give something that you don't necessarily have within yourself. And so I think coaching is a great way to try to uncover some of that, right? A lot of times, you know, I, for most of my career, I, I operate in a very alpha environment. And when I look back, a lot of that bravado, a lot of that alpha, right, that I'm going to puff up and posture up stems from some insecurity, some level of insecurity, right? This is my strength and that's what I'm going to present and leave me alone, right? But, but what about everything else? And so sometimes it's, it's what I consider what I call C moments, right? S-E-E, a significant emotional event that just you get a humble helping of humble pie. And hopefully that's not the case, but it's being receptive. You know, we have to, I think as individuals, leader or not, be willing to, to be receptive to feedback, be receptive to the notion that we're not as great as we might think we are. I'm sure we have a lot of things to offer, but we suck at something right? Because we can't be great at everything. 
Otherwise, you know, we'd be superhumans. I, I suck at running track, but I can run long distance. I'm just never going to be that hundred meter sprinter, but I can get better at it, but I need to be receptive right to that. And, and I think coaching is a great way. If we look at coaching as a way to not only improve our leadership capabilities, but just as a person, right? How does a human tie into the leader or the role of the leader and really get to the humanity of it? Because I think in that process, we can uncover a lot of our own insecurities where we focus more on our strengths and don't always give enough attention to our to the things that need improvement. Yeah, I didn't know that you were going to say coaching, but that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I say that because, especially in the military, mentorship and coaching are terms that are used very interchangeably. And, and it's, it's something that I try to advocate a lot for that is very different. A mentor and a coach are two very different things in two very different roles. I think coaching is, is, is very powerful in that the person's finding it for within themselves, right? A mentor, yeah, yeah, I needed a lot of mentors growing up in the military and, and kind of helped me along the way. But as, as I got more senior, just even in some of my middle management roles, there were some coaches that I didn't even realize they were coaching. They were just kind of helping elicit out of me things that I had already within myself, but I had to realize them for myself because within that is accountability right? I dug it out myself. Now I'm able to realize it. Now it's on me. It's up to me to realize it and, and, and get after it, whatever that might be. And just setting those, those small goals, right? And a lot of those things were just nudges and, hey, have you thought about this? Or like, what are your thoughts on this? And, and it's just really kind of teasing that out of the person, which is where I think coaching really, really becomes powerful. Yeah. I was just part of a coaching session about an hour ago. I was observing a coach in a uh, final exam, coaching another leader. It's some powerful, powerful stuff. The analogy that I most often use is if you're coaching, you're in the passenger seat. If you're mentoring, you're in the driver's seat. Right. Uh, do you want to be the driver or do you want the other person to learn and grow from their own self-discovery? So I'm glad to see you bring that into the dialogue. One of the topics that I hear a lot about in, in our coaching and our coaching education is I can't be my authentic self at work. And even this, I just learned this uh, phrase, code switching, which is I have to be somebody different when I'm at work than I am when I'm with my friends or when I'm home. So talk to me as a, as a DE and I operationalizer, how do you address that balance between being an authentic self and being who you need to be at work or who others think you need to be at work? Introspection. I, I think there's, uh, there's always uh, discretion, right? In, in how, how much of the sailor of me comes out at work, right? There's certain things that are professionally acceptable and there's some things that are not professionally acceptable. And so I need to temper that. Some people would argue, well, if you wouldn't say it in front of your grandmother, you wouldn't say it in front of anybody else, right? Well, mm -hmm. okay. I think time and place is key, but it, I, would, I would say that introspection is really knowing, okay, well, what is causing me to feel like I have to code switch, whether mm -hmm. it's a cultural thing, right? Or whether it's having a sailor mouth, right? And I'll tell you this much, um, I struggled a lot uh, growing up. So I, I learned I learned English as a third language. Uh, my mm -hmm. first language was Nahuatl, which is my father's, father's native tongue. He's an indigenous person. And then I learned Spanish and then I learned English. And then in high school, I learned French and then Mongolian along the way and some Arabic, but I had a very strong accent and I spoke street English and I was from mm -hmm. South Central Los Angeles and I had a hard time, right? Mastering the English language such that 
one of my commanding officers at a small boat unit that I was at, he said, Hey, you're the new petty officer in charge, but don't get your head blown. You know, don't, don't get a big head. You're just my cleanest looking dirt bag before you start though. I need to send you to academic skills class. And I, six weeks of eight hours a day, learning how to master the English language. And so I'm like, well, wh why do I need to speak so proper? And so it wasn't a matter of me losing my self identity as a kid from South Mexican kid from South Central LA is, is well, what was the challenge, right? I had already navigated certain languages, several languages. Why can't I master this English language? And I had to really narrow the gap. Well, there really isn't a difference. The person's going to be the same. How I come across in a professional setting might have slight variances the way that I am in a non-professional setting, but it's still the same person. And it's, I, I don't know that there's ever going to be, at least for me, a direct correlation or like this one for one thing. I think there's always going to be some discretion. And I think a lot of it is just because, you know, there's a time and place to speak like a sailor, sound like a sailor. And a lot of them is just colloquialism or just, you know, punctuating something or a thought or a belief or something I feel very convicted for. Or if I hit my toe on the couch, you know, I, I might throw out a couple of expletives. But I think the code switching piece and, and being your authentic self, I would have to question like, well, what, what is the organization like that? I don't feel like I can be more like myself. Am I trying to assimilate? Or am I trying to contribute to something? And I think that's a huge difference when we look at organizations that we join, right, as a place of employment. And it's something that I, I talk to transitioning service members about a lot is, you know, are you joining an organization and bringing what you, you know, what you bring to the table or are you trying to assimilate? I, I'd never want to be in an organization where I have to assimilate. And, and I feel really blessed to be where I'm at right now because I feel like can, can, I can be more of my authentic self. I've been very transparent with a lot of things and, and, and it's, it's, it's been really great. It's been really personally gratifying, which shows up in my professional capacity because as I grow and I get older and I'm able to kind of learn new things, I'm able to kind of converge a little bit more between the two. That kid from South Central LA and who I am now are more closely aligned just because of my way of life, my beliefs, and just how I've matured and grown. And I think the same can be the case between the person and the leader. And once we're able to be more congruent with that, I think that's where that the, the intersection of the humanity comes in where we're able to empathize because if we're able to show grace with ourselves and empathize with ourselves, then we can then project that onto our, to our workforces. When we talk about this and it, it, you can get into a, a days long discussion of multiculturalism versus a unified culture, we think, and I'd like to hear your insights. If you do agree to work together, there are, there have to be things that we agree that we agree on and then everything else you get. So the thing that, you know, that I most recently saw was somebody on LinkedIn was talking about dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And I immediately thought, hmm, what's that all about? And so what are your thoughts on multiculturalism versus a unified culture? Well, I think that, that uh, for me, it has a lot to do with the values of an organization. I think values... And, and the mission and, and the objectives, right? Those overarching things or themes rather transcend what a person looks like or sounds like. I, I think within those values, we can find convergence or agreeance in what we sound like. Not necessarily the how we speak, but the level of professionalism that we give to one another, right? I'm going to be sensitive to the fact that some people don't use expletives and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's a very... I think socially acceptable mannerism or agreement, right? That we're going to treat each other mm -hmm. with dignity and respect. But what does that look like and sound like? Let's have a conversation about that. What somebody dresses like, you know, a lot of times 
biases come into play, right? If somebody's wearing a $100 suit versus a $5,000 suit, does it change the person? I don't know. Sometimes it might make somebody feel better because they're wearing a $1,000 suit versus a $100 suit. Or somebody who's oriented with that might be able to depict that and say, oh, that's a $100 suit. You must not have money. You must not you must be a have not, right? Versus I'm going to mm-hmm. listen to this $5,000 suit wearing person. Mm-hmm. And I think Elon Musk must put it really well that some people think that education and intelligence are, are synonymous with one another. And that's just not the case. I would argue that, you know, the analogy of, of a Walmart steak versus a Morton steak, right? If you take both steaks side by side and you put the Morton steak on a trash can lid and you put the Walmart steak on a fine piece of China, we eat with our eyes that Walmart steak is going to taste a lot better than Morton steak. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a thousand dollar suit versus a hundred dollar suit. I think a lot of it has to do with the values and how we present ourselves. And if we can align ourselves around those values, then it really doesn't matter. One of the things that I think a lot of people aren't necessarily ready to have the conversation about is, you know, how people show up to, to the workplace. In the military, there's, there's always been this, this challenge with hairstyles, especially with, with African-Americans. What is the issue with the fro? It was, you know, and, and it's, well, it's not aesthetically pleasing. Well, what's not aesthetically pleasing? That might be the way somebody's hair texture is. And so I think the military is adapted to that. And within reason, there have been some adjustments to accommodate for people of different hairstyles or different type of hair texture. And that's a great thing. It just, what else can we do to bring more collegiality and be more inclusive and considerate of other cultures, of other people's way of lives? whether it's a religious observance, right? A religious preference. And I think with everything within reason, as long as, again, I'll go back to orienting around the values of an organization and do those values get lived out by the leadership? Can you see it in the workplace? For me, a measure of success of a good DEI program is don't show me your shiny DEI thing, right? I want to see it show me in your organization. Mm. I want to see it living and breathing. I want to see it woven in everyday life. If you can show me and say, hey, this is my DEI right there. Well, that's great. It's a nice paperweight. It needs to be woven into it, right? It needs to be Mm -hmm. a a manner Mm -hmm. of modality in how the organization functions. Yeah, it makes me think about like your kid is asking you, why do I have to do this? So because I said so. And it's (laughs) you don't want to come up with a reason right then and there because, you know, we're just we're going to move on. You know, I, I, I said so. So, you know, this is how it goes. So. Are there situations in a culture where like, you're like, just to save time, we're going to say, you know, we're not going to individualize this. It's just, it is what it is. And then you move on. Or is that a well, problem? I think, I think there's a time and place for everything, right? And in, 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 in layman's terms, right? There's a time to shut up in color. We do what we're told because in the military, people die, right? There's bullets flying. Go do what I told you to do, right? And I would hope that in that context that my people would jump off a cliff if I asked them to, because they, one, they trust that I have something that's going to catch them and Hey, there's bullets flying. So jump off that cliff. Don't question Mm -hmm. me. But that, that ought to be an exception. But even beyond that, right. There's, there's some trust built into that, that, Hey, Lucas, go do X now. Okay. Or Hey, why would you just go do it? If we're having that conversation for me as a leader, there's something that I need to improve on because if I have a sense of urgency and I say, hey, Lucas, go jump off that cliff. And you're like, well, why am I jumping off? Okay, then there may be, maybe I do need to explain, hey, you're jumping off a cliff because X, Y, and Z, and I got something for you to, to catch you. So go jump off the cliff. But if we're still going back and forth, then, then hey, what am I doing as a leader where you don't, where, where you having a hard time trusting what I'm saying or what I'm directing you to do? And I'm not saying placing blind, blind faith, right? Uh, I think there's a time and place for being inquisitive, but I think there's always going to be situations where people 
might just question just for the sake of questioning, or they're not happy with not getting their idea materialized, or maybe they're just having a bad day. Whatever the reason, they're just being very resistant to whatever's being directed. I, I do think there's a time and place for everything. And sure, let's have this conversation, but let's actually have the conversation, not, hey, we'll talk about this offline, and then we just never do. There's no value in that, right? And, and we lose credibility as leaders when we don't follow through with what we say. So if I say, hey, Lucas, don't have time right now. I just need you to go do this. We'll talk after. Then I owe you that. And I'm going to say, hey, Lucas, can we go talk? Here's here's why. Here's the reason behind it. And help me understand what was not clear before. Because as a leader, I want to make sure that when these situations happen, you have the trust in me that we're going to go and execute and we can talk about it later. So one of the requirements of being a distinguished guest, Saul, is that you have to give up one of your secrets. <laughs> so before we let you go, tell us one of your personal or professional secrets to success? Oh man, I was, that's a tough question. I, I don't know that I have any secrets. I think if anything, I would say be very open-minded and, and being willing to suck. Uh, just, <laughs> you know, in the military, we should say just embrace the suck, right? Cause it's going to suck no matter what you do, mm-hmm, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, you can complain about it or not. You're still going to have to do it and it's still going to suck. So just embrace it. And I would venture to say, savor the moment when those, when those pitfalls happen. Because there's opportunity for growth and resiliency. And, and so, yeah, I would say allow yourself to suck. Because one can't appreciate the light unless we know what darkness is. Hey, how's it going? Um, you know, we can't appreciate water unless we're thirsty, right? We, I'm sure we can appreciate water, but I think water feels more refreshing when we're thirsty. I think mm-hmm. having, for example, the financial capabilities that I have now I am so appreciative of them and I'm so much more grateful because I know what poor is being like, right? There's a context behind it and, and knowing what, when it sucks and then being able to overcome that, I think that's what keeps me driven. And, and I know it's going to suck and I'm okay with that. I just need to see past that and see what, what the outcome is going to be. No, that's good stuff. Thank you. So Luca, as always, you get the last question. Going off of the boxing thing again, um, do you have a favorite professional and Anything that inspires you about their career or just any sport? No, not any sport. One person that I do, I, I don't necessarily always agree with, but I do admire a lot is uh, David Goggins. Uh, I think his story is so mm. remarkable. His book, Can't Hurt Me, I've, I've read it. I've listened to it a couple of times over and it's just so inspiring to me right because, <laughs> you know, at, at, at the face of peril and a lot of, yeah, there you go. It's, it's such, a, uh, such an inspiring book. So I, I would say David Goggins in, in a really close second, not athletes by any measure, stretch of the imagination, but Dr. Bruce Perry and, and, and Oprah and their collaborative work with this book called What Happened to You? I think every leader should read mm. that book. It talks about changing the narrative from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And it really gives, mm. gives weight to being able to empathize with people and having that connectedness from a humanity standpoint. And the book really focuses around trauma from a societal standpoint, generational and genetic standpoint, even the science behind it and really connecting with people mm. and being able to be a better leader within yourself, having that lens and having that ability to see people as humans. Hmm. Yeah. When you read Goggin's book, you definitely got to get over the F-bomb <laughs> re- really quickly. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been amazing. Awesome. Yeah, thank thank you, you for having me. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review. 
and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.